Uh, so welcome to episode uh, four of the Gatology podcast, season three already. The year's been uh, flying by. What's really exciting about uh, season three is this opportunity to kind of travel around the world and speak to lots of interesting people. And what's really nice uh, about today's episode is we're joined by um, Emily Blake. Hello, Emily. Emily is um, a trained, qualified nutritional therapist. She works in clinical education at Invivo. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. And she runs her own uh, private practice. And uh, Emily and I have known each other for kind of a little while now. And I stumbled on an article that Emily had written in conjunction um, with some people. And I said, I think that would make an amazing podcast episode. So thank you, Emily. I know you're busy. Um, But I think it's going to be fascinating today for people that are listening to this podcast are aware more and more about their kind of gut health and are thinking well what can I do what should I be doing what is real information and where should I spend my money and where shouldn't I and I think this is going to be kind of really really helpful today Emily you've got a lot of knowledge particularly working with in vivo because they obviously do a range of diagnostic testing as well And I thought that'd be a really great place to start. If I'm listening to this, I know that my, for whatever reason, I'm I'm one of the one in four that has some kind of sort of digestive issue. And I'm thinking I should really kind of do something about it. And I've done the kind of eating healthy and tried kind of different probiotics. I'm thinking about testing. I suppose the first question that I'll ask is, is there any point in doing any microbiome testing at all? Does it genuinely? Because we know there are large parts of the microbiome that we don't fully understand yet. Mm. So is it worth spending the money on tests, which are quite expensive? Is it going to give you any useful information? Yeah, I mean, that's a great um, launchpad, really. So I guess just to start off with, I mean, just to kind of check in with our understanding of the microbiome. So, you know... At Invivo Healthcare, a UK-based microbiome company, we're a human microbiome company and we specialise in the human microbiome. And what is that? So the human microbiome is basically the colonies of microbes living within and on the human body. And those can be bacteria, viruses, archaea, and there are a range of other microbes they can be. And the human body is basically a landscape, okay, um, comprised of different ecological niches, like any landscape out in nature. So you've got the oral cavity, you've got the gut microbiome, you've got the, um, the vagina, you've got the skin, uh, the lungs, the list goes on. So and at any point of contact, really, between the, the human body and the outside world, there are microbes, microbial communities living there that we've evolved with over the, the many thousands of years. And what we're really learning about through the latest science in this field is that the, these colonies of microbes living at these different parts all around the body, they can either be absolutely fundamental to the health of the human body in various ways, or when they become out of balance, they can start to drive a range of chronic diseases that we're seeing today. So they have immense potential to either help or hinder us, basically, which is why the human microbiome has garnered so much attention recently and it continues to, and why you know we're having this podcast today is because there are now thousands of research papers showing just the potential of you know optimizing the human microbiome for really restoring human health and ecology. Um, and in terms of you know when might you think about supporting the human microbiome? So really, pretty much any condition that we see today can have some underpinnings in disruption to the human microbiome. And I think that's what really got me into the microbiome as an area to kind of really specialise in, is because in my own practice, I've always been quite passionate about being a bit of a generalist, like an expert generalist. I've always loved being able to have the skills to help most people. And one tool that I had in my mind when seeing any complex case has always been, okay, so there's lots going on here, but what are the three or four or five common denominators that's driving much of what that person's experiencing? And one of those would always be the human microbiome. So if somebody would come to me with, say, IBS, that's a natural starting point. You know, there's so much research showing the many ways in which disruption to the gut microbiome can drive IBS symptoms. That's irritable bowel syndrome um, and also inflammatory bowel disease. So for someone yeah. that there'll be lots of people who, who say, yeah, I think I've got IBS. I've got some of those things. Give us an idea then of... Um, what you might see in somebody struggling with IBS in their microbiome specifically here mm-hmm. that um, a healthy person you know, would or wouldn't have. 
Yeah, and that's a great question. So kind of um, looking at this at two levels. So a key element of thinking about microbiome testing is also recognising that the microbes within the body are existing within the human body. So with private comprehensive stool testing, we typically look at a range of host markers and microbiome markers, okay? So by host markers, I mean proteins that our body is making for various reasons. So for immunity, inflammation, digestion, and say gut barrier health. So when I'm talking about kind of a stool test in the context of IBS, I'm talking about one that includes ideally host markers like pancreatic elastase, and, which is a digestive enzyme, or um, you know zonulin looking at gut barrier health, but also then a range of microbial markers covering a whole wide range of areas because collectively when you look at the host microbiome markers in the gut there are a range of possible underlying drivers that we are trying to looking for to see what what is it that's relevant for that person in terms of their IBS so from an IBS perspective Ollie you know there's quite a range that we'd look for so conventionally when we do a stool test for IBS the, the normal kind of where your starting point has always been to look at, well, what's overgrown? So is there a parasite there, for example, or is there candida? Um, well, we always tend to start when thinking about it is, first of all, to look at the host markers. So at a really kind of fundamental level, you know, what's their digestive capacity like? You know, it's really helpful to think about digestion from north to south. So what I mean by that is, you know, how well are you chewing your food? You know, what's your stomach acid like? What are your digestive enzymes like? What's your bile flow like? And starting there, because that is really crucial to lower digestive health too. So starting off by looking at, you know, digestive enzyme secretions, they can often be lower in IBS you know and if you aren't breaking down your food properly you can be much more reactive to that food and a lot of people will be aware that you know supplementation can be a part of this so let's specifically talk there about you know digestive enzymes are are a great one but are there ways you know is when you're working with clients that you those things can be addressed more naturally to to encourage the body to produce more of those themselves. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take an example then, say, where there's low pancreatic elastase in the stool test, which is quite common. The first point really is always, you know, yes, we can use digestive enzymes to help kind of prop up digestion. It's a great way of managing symptoms, absolutely. But, you know, you raise a really important point. The question is, well, why is the pancreatic elastase low in the first place? You know, um, or, or suboptimal? You know, and I think it comes back to asking those questions. So, for example, chronic stress can have an inhibitory effect on our digestive enzymes. We also know that, you know, chronic stress can just generally slow down our digestive processes. So at a really fundamental level, you know, the balance of our nervous system is crucial. So I always kind of take that huge step back with clients in this scenario and think about, well, you know, how relaxed are you when you eat? You know, are you taking a moment to transition from your busy working day into your meal? Like doing some deep breathing, some time outside, you know, really thinking about stress levels and that's crucial. Uh, And then it comes down to as well, there's a link between say um, digestive enzyme secretions and our stomach acid levels. So some people are very prone to low stomach acid levels, which can be very linked to um, chronic stress, but also dehydration uh, also there can be medication use like proton pump inhibitors mm. but really in various scenarios and also stomach acid can lower with age as well you know you often do see a connection there and thinking about well how can i support this person's stomach acid levels where appropriate and also stimulate digestive enzyme secretions directly and i really love talking about bitter foods here so just like, like bitter foods like chicory and radicchio and you know that sort of thing and like wild rocket and you know apple cider vinegar gorgeous uh, you know organic olive oil it's got bitter compounds mm. in it these these bitter compounds are just so formative for helping to stimulate digestive processes and i was literally just writing a client plan the other day um for an IBD client for whom this is just a really relevant question that we're working on at the moment. Um, and we were talking about how to achieve that in his daily life. And we really kind of came down to the idea of like an organic chicory coffee daily, you know, because that's a lovely way of bringing that, that food in in a, in, a, in a habit we already have. Um, yeah. And also we were talking about making a gorgeous salad, you know, to have before a large main meal that's got like wild rocket and chicory and olive oil in there to, make, to bring that all together. Um, so I tend to focus on those areas initially. I think what's interesting is, you know, I speak to a lot of people and and, and perhaps somebody that's not gone and seen a, a nutritional therapist. And some people have done a remarkable amount of work. You know, they've tried eliminating foods from their diets. They've tried taking supplements and probiotics. They've tried fasting. They've tried all those different things. And one thing that's become sort of really prevalent to me is this idea that 
it's not necessarily just all of the things you need to do. It's doing them in the right order. Mm. And so, you know, if somebody just took a load of probiotics, but potentially they needed an antimicrobial before they went and took a load of, Mm -hmm. that's the difference between it working and it not working. And I think that's why you really want to, it it can be so encouraging for people to work with a professional practitioner because it's just having that knowledge and guidance, maybe even with some microbiome testing built in to actually say, here is literally what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it's these steps in these order that are going to get you to the kind of outcome. Because for some people, they put a phenomenal amount of work, time and money and they just they don't get those kind of end results and like you're saying there if you go and address something and the stomach acid's not right or there's not enough uh, digestive enzymes and you go and take some antimicrobials it's not solved the complete problem it's quite systemic the way that you go in and look at it yeah absolutely and i think what I love about what you just mentioned there is, you know, I've got quite a few clients who come to me with the kind of basis of I've got IBS and food sensitivities. I need your help in terms of what foods I need to eliminate. And I always really reframe that because I'm a massive foodie. Like the last thing I ever want to do for myself, my family, my friends, my clients is to restrict their diet unnecessarily. I'm, I'm always really keen on that scenario. Okay, well, you're sensitive to that food, maybe it's dairy, for instance, or sulfur-rich foods. Well, let's just ask ourselves the question of why that might be. Let's mm. understand what the health of your entire gut ecosystem is like. Let's really evaluate your digestive capacity and the, the balance of microbes living within your gut so we can really understand, well, how can we make your gut more resilient in terms of its function. Um, Maybe just reduce a few foods here and there that seem to be overtly triggering for you, but nothing too dramatic, hopefully, um, ideally. And what I always find is when you take that sort of approach you don't need to hugely restrict somebody's diet um, mm-hmm. because you by harnessing the, the and improving the resilience of the gut you suddenly improve their ability to kind of to tolerate a whole range of different foods and you know I've got yeah one particular client who that was transformative for who got very stuck on the loop of restricting their diet for managing what they what was looking like SIBO so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and by the time that he come to me he'd done so much kind of work which was really like blessing me really 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 tried um, to help himself doing things that you would naturally often try to do but the problem was that he'd lost a lot of weight by this point and was very Mm. depleted in himself very low immunity very low and when we saw each other he literally said I don't enjoy food anymore food is a source Mm. of real agony for me and I was and I was really determined for him to to avoid taking a restrictive approach as much as possible so we did a a private stool test for him to really help us to understand you know exactly what is the lay of the land going on in your gut like what are your digestive processes like like what is the health of your gut barrier what is the balance of microbes and by it was quite amazing for him the main pattern we saw was disrupted bile flow. It didn't. He had actually like pale yellow orange stools, so it didn't mm. seem like he was having enough bile flow, and that can have a big impact on making it easier for microbes to overgrow in the gut and for you to not digest your food very well. So by working on that through natural uh, kind of natural interventions, we didn't need to restrict his diet. We didn't need really antimicrobials in that scenario, and he made such lovely progress in like kind of just by increasing again. the bile. Yeah, really by with like kind of um, like kind of herbs, especially like through different supplements and through foods that can help to stimulate bile production and flow. So getting the bile axis working better because bile, um, you know, has a lot of a focus on it for its role in supporting fat digestion, which is fundamental. Because if you don't digest fat very well, you will have loose, pale stools and quite a lot of gut discomfort. But also bile is an antimicrobial substance. So if you're not producing enough, then you are more prone to having an overgrowth of different microbes mm. in the gut that can make your gut feel bloated and heavy. So it was quite informative for him and it, it, that approach really helped. There seems to be a, a bit of a sort of focus at the moment when you, if you speak to somebody who are sort of struggling with their gut health, this idea of what you were just saying there, that... I need to go and test my intolerances. Okay. I think it's become like a real catchphrase in the last five years mm-hmm. where, you know, people are saying, well, I'm intolerant to this or I, I can't eat that or I can't do those certain things. Certainly what I found from my experience where I went through long periods in my early 20s of having to avoid so many different foods before I went and worked with a functional practitioner that I would have just said, well, I'm intolerant to garlic, I'm intolerant to gluten, these sorts of things. 
And then now looking back in hindsight, once I'd actually gone and done the work and dealt with the kind of root issue, what was going on, those foods no longer kind of caused me a problem. Mm. And I guess my question from that is, is how much allergy testing, there's no qualms about that, right? Like you're going to go into anaphylactic shock if you eat nuts. It's useful to know about that. (laughs) Um, But what are your thoughts around intolerance testing? My slight concern, I guess, with it would be that it's not, it's telling you to avoid certain foods, but how accurate are they? And what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think I would rather speak to kind of the aspect of food intolerance testing in terms of, of um, really understanding, well, once again, like what is the state of gut health at the starting point? Because typically mm-hmm. if somebody is experiencing food intolerance symptoms, like kind of abdominal pain, bloating, loose bowel movements, for example, the tendency is to think, oh, food intolerance straight away, food intolerance testing. I guess where I see it is the way I think about testing with a client or anyone really is what test can you do for somebody that's going to give you the widest range of information about the, 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 the whole range of possible imbalances that could be driving their symptoms. And my, my reservation, my caution, I guess, about food intolerance testing is that it's very specific in what it's looking for. And when you do find various intolerances, you still don't know why they have those intolerances. So my experience has been when clients have done those perhaps prior to coming seeing me they have then restricted their diet further in line with the food intolerance results Mm. and yes they might see some short-term relief but they might still have lingering symptoms because it's still only a fixed part of the problem you know the way I see it is if you had um, a leak from your roof into your bedroom and you had a leak coming through the ceiling you know we wouldn't normally just get a bucket and leave it there or just kind of wipe the ceiling and hope it's going to get better. What we'd always do is kind of go up, get a roofer, go, go to the roof, have a little look. Is there a tile loose? Is a tile missing? Like, you'd always do that, wouldn't you, when it comes to your home? You would look to see, like, what's the root cause of that, that leak rather than just mopping it up and getting a bucket. And I think we need to apply that logic to how we think about human health and understanding what's going on. Because in that scenario yes kind of um reducing some of those foods you're most intolerant to might relieve some symptoms and it can just kind of take a bit of the, of the fire away from somebody's experience but it's only part of the picture it's like that bucket under a leak essentially it might help short term but the the cause is still there and when you do further investigation for people in these scenarios like particularly through private stool testing you then see okay well their digestive capacity is really low like their pancreatic mm. elastase is insufficient or their bile flow or they're missing out on some really important mental bacteria that help the digestion of certain foods and when you look at it from that perspective you come away from that with a wider variety of areas that you can help somebody with which is really empowering and i'm assuming as well like when you when you the 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 long goal for everyone is to have a really diverse diet like long-term restrictive diets and, and that is not that's not what you want to be on is it for really really long periods of time no no absolutely because there's so there's just so much research showing how say dietary diversity especially plant diversity like aiming for a range of plants like over 30 different types a week is just so fundamental for the health of the gut and whole body health and you know i think a good example of that is a low fodmap diet so um fodmaps are kind of different types of sugars basically that are very quickly fermented in the gut and can lead Mm. to very quick flares of like bloating for some people and other kind of upper abdominal symptoms and it's very common for people with irritable bowel syndromes ibs or SIBO to go on low fodmap diets to help relieve their symptoms and it makes in intuitive sense when somebody's very flaring with those symptoms like bloating abdominal discomfort to kind of temporarily reduce their intake of foods that are very quickly fermented and irritate those symptoms but the 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 challenge with that is that a FODMAP diet should only ever be really short term because it's very Mm -hmm. restrictive and you actually end up cutting out some foods that are pretty fabulous in most other respects in terms of like cruciferous vegetables for example like broccoli Mm -hmm. and onions garlic all the good stuff you know and, and you know yeah it's so interesting because that is the exact sort of mistake that i made well not mistake i mean it was i I uh, originally went to see a nutritionist and probably about three years after I started getting really severe sort of gastric symptoms, she put me on the FODMAP diet. And to start with, it was like, it was like life changing. My symptoms, as long as I was hyper restrictive and followed it to, so to start with, I was just over the moon. Mm -hmm. I was like mid twenties and I thought, 
it, I can just carry on living my life. Yeah. But then what happened was, is I spent probably the best part of six years on a restrictive kind of FODMAP diet. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, it wasn't, I hadn't actually solved what was going on. I just and and then of course over time it becomes very very difficult to live on such a restrictive diet like so many people do now because there's more access on the internet isn't there you can find a FODMAP diet kind of quite easily mm-hmm. and then when I did the testing later on I went in and found you know lots of things that you're talking about that were going on and was able to kind of make those sort of more sustained sort of changes if somebody is buying a microbiome test with most purchases now being ethical, knowing who you're buying from is really, really important. But as far as like when you yeah. buy a microbiome test, is there a, do they differ a lot in, as far as like the data that you kind of get back from them? Yeah, absolutely. So let's dig into that then. So there are different approaches. So there's different technologies available. So you've got um, like quantitative real-time PCR, so qPCR, which is one technology which really probes a sample for specific microbes that are really well evidence-based. We understand how they behave. We know what to do about them. There is also like next-generation sequencing, which really looks at the abundance of every micro possible within a certain sample, which is looking much at a much bigger scale. But that also means that knowledge of some of those species might be less understood than looking for specific microbes that you really understand. So I really work with PCR micro stool tests because that way we're looking at those microbes that we know have particular disease associations and we know, you know their clinical significance and crucially we know what to do with them as well. And PCR testing, just to help people understand, that's something that is done via stool testing. So you, so it comes in the post, you do a stool sample, and then you send it back off to the laboratory. Yeah, exactly that. So you can do PCR analysis of a range of different samples from the human body. So like saliva, for example, a stool test, a vaginal swab too. Exactly. So taking a, a stool, for, kind of for example, because it's obviously so easy to test the large intestinal microbiome because it's through feces. It's literally a stool sample that you do at home. Um, depending on the lab that you choose, it might be one stool sample, for one day might be one over several days that goes off to the lab and through that one stool sample um, the laboratory can get such a wide range of information from quite a small amount of stool actually and quantitative real-time PCR that's basically a technology which amplifies DNA so you can really study it properly and what you're essentially looking at with that technology is you're looking for the relative abundance of different microbes that you're specifically looking for within a sample. So that really comes back to how you choose a test um, and really kind of comes down to what I'm really passionate about is going for a test where the microbes that that are being looked for are ones that you really understand their clinical significance because that way you really know what you're dealing with and it kind of takes a lot of the noise away basically and crucially as well it's it's also important to look beyond the gut microbiome too and think what's the context of that of that microbial mm-hmm. data and that's where looking for a host microbiome test is so crucial so with a lot of kind of um key private functional tests on the market like our stool test for example which is called the gie ecologics is we're looking at a range of host markers and microbiome markers so the host markers look at say immunity and inflammation digestive capacity and gut barrier function so you can really understand health of the host in those areas so you can interpret the microbiome data within the correct context and that's just really really important to kind of correct interpretation really now there's some tests on the market that people can they do the test uh, they download an app and there's several of them available where um, you uh, get the data back and it says here's what we can see here are the foods that we kind of recommend um that's like the automated kind of version mm-hmm. which probably is a little bit more kind of cost effective how important do you think it is working in conjunction with a practice because i'm a shoot like your testing for example has to be interpreted by a practitioner mm-hmm. yeah you know so the data comes back but then there's a lot of fill in the gaps essentially to understand what the kind of data says so is there a concern that some tests don't give you the kind of full picture so if you just change some food based on that you might not essentially be getting to the kind of root cause of what's going on Mm, such an important question so the way that kind of one way of looking at it is what i'm really passionate about what we're really passionate about is personalized health interventions so it's going to be as personalized as possible to that person in front of you so by 
presenting kind of a, the kind of the stool test data in the way that we do, which is not with um, layers of interpretation on top of it automatically generated, but instead putting those into the hands of a healthcare provider, such as a nutritional therapist, who can then interpret those results with that client's full case history in mind, is just so important to making sure that that data is correctly interpreted because that healthcare provider will know that client far better than any computer ever, ever will. And there's, a, there's an art, I think, to interpreting this data um, and really kind of gauging you know, what is and isn't relevant from this test for this person with their clinical symptoms. And it kind of raises wider questions around you know, um, what, what, what is a healthy gut microbiome? You know, you know, it's not that simple. There's, there's, there's a huge questions going on at the moment within the microbiology sphere about what is meant by a healthy gut microbiome. And what's coming mm-hmm. through is that that's a really, complicated question which is very difficult to answer and actually it's incredibly nuanced it's incredibly individual to that person so what I guide practitioners with on a daily basis through my role at Invivo on the clinical team is helping to teach practitioners to gauge which path what patterns in the stool test seem clinically significant for that person and it's a really it's a, it's a way of navigating that complexity and making sure that it's as personalized as possible and that's really mm. why um, very much the kind of stool testing is often best managed in the hands of a healthcare provider to make sure that the recommendations aren't generic and that they are really personalised. And I think, you know, what we're kind of saying in a way is that there is so much about the microbiome that we don't understand. And probably 20 years from now, there is going to be bespoke probiotics based on your profile and we've sequenced every single bacteria and we understand the data on every single one of them and we can deliver, you know, therapeutics in a completely different way. But actually what we're saying right now is we're aware we don't know a lot, mm-hmm. but there are certain bacteria we really do understand and we understand that either having too much of them or not enough of them can have a real detrimental effect on your kind of health. Yeah. And at the same time, in conjunction with your bacteria, there are these core components which are clinically researched, like we were talking about earlier, enzyme production, bile flow, stomach acid, inflammatory host health markers. We really do understand that. So if you kind of put those things together with a practitioner that understands who you are as an individual, that is your potentially you're going to get the best health outcome by using that kind of combination. Yeah, absolutely. And also what you get through that approach is the ability for that practitioner to guide the client in terms of what order to do things in as well. Because mm. that's, that is where the art comes in, in terms of you know, functional medicine and nutritional therapy is, is, also, um, is also gauging what order to help somebody in terms of nutritional and lifestyle interventions and supplements so that you can, they can have the smoothest journey possible with their health journey and hopefully have the swiftest re- resolution to their symptoms as well. And I think... Um, and I think another key aspect here really as well is that there's some stool tests on the market that are microbiome only focused using certain technology and they, they do have their role to play absolutely in terms of looking at general diversity and they can be a helpful tool for just seeing what is your diversity like as a check-in, you know, as a bit of eye-opener yep. and thinking, you know, you really need to increase your fibre intake, you know, because of X, Y and Z and that can be a helpful tool to get people onto the right track. What we're talking about here is practitioner level tests where you've got a wide range of microbial markers that have particular associations with particular chronic conditions and we know what how they behave we know what to do with them etc but also looking at a range of host markers many of which are like conventionally recognized so for example you know calprotectin which is a localized marker of inflammation in the bowel um, and pancreatic elastase the digestive enzyme mentioned earlier you know um these are conventionally recognized markers so i had a really strong so just just on that note then, calprotectin, mm-hmm. that is a, on certain stool tests, that is something that indicates whether there is inflammation yes. or not going on. And so give us an example then. Would somebody with IBS, for example, if you saw high calprotectin on the data that comes back from the test, what would you be thinking as a clinician? Well... Typically, in order for somebody to get an IBS diagnosis conventionally, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So they typically have had a variety of conventional tests to rule out any other disorders like IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, in order to get to the IBS diagnosis. So 
typically in that scenario, you will see kind of the range of patterns that we mentioned earlier. But, you know, there is a, if they haven't had, you know, a conventional thorough investigation, like a colonoscopy, for example, or a stool test, you know, there are scenarios where I look at a GI ecologic for somebody who's had general IBS type symptoms, never gone to the GP for it had a uh, GI clinic from an elderly client recently I was helping a practitioner with, persistent abdominal pain, um, loose stools, um, general IBS symptoms for years. Um, and actually his result came back with very high calprotectin, showing there's a lot of inflammation in the bowel. There was also a marker called FIT, which is a hidden blood in the stool, occult blood. And that was also mm. high. So there was bleeding somewhere happening in the GIT, the digestive tract as well. And actually that warranted a GP referral for further investigation. And actually he ended up to have colon cancer. So it really yeah. highlighted an important theme is that being able to have access to these conventional markers privately, which you can access, you know, uh, you're empowered to be able to access those, you know, um, through a healthcare provider is a really important screening tool as well. Um, you know, for whether there could be anything underlying somebody's conditions at a deeper level too. And that was just a really moving example of the role it plays. And actually on that point as well, you, um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I've done a stool test already with the NHS or with my kind of GP. So do I need a stool test? And that's actually probably a helpful point to kind of say that, you know, are the stool tests different between going to a private lab like Invivo or having one done with your GP? How, what are the differences? It's a great question. So the kind of GP stool tests um, primarily look at calprotectin. So it's obviously a recognised marker of inflammation, really to kind of look at IBD especially. It can also be raised in colon cancer too. Um, and then also they will do some microbiological analysis on a stool sample. So if somebody's been away to a foreign country, they've come back with loose bowel movements, abdominal pain. The GP can do um, a stool sample to look at kind of common pathogens like salmonella, for example, and certain parasites. So that's really important to have that conventional investigation. That's the first point. And occasionally that might also kind of justify a colonoscopy as well to look further. So all of that investigation is really crucial. And with private stool testing, they're really like a complementary tool to go alongside the conventional testing when that's, when, when that's kind of relevant for that person with their symptoms. Yeah, so what you're saying there is, other. yeah, you've yeah. ruled out anything really serious it's funny actually i was i was having dinner with a a friend the other night who knows nothing about we were just catching up and he was we were talking about you know the podcast and what was kind of going on and and his response was well you know i don't what the nhs are there and therefore i kind of don't worry about anything um and, and and my kind of thoughts around were the nhs is this for not we've got so many listeners to this podcast in america mm-hmm. right and i think in the uk we take for granted the nhs is this phenomenal life-saving service mm-hmm. but it is not a life optimizing mm-hmm. service necessarily and if it really tried to be it wouldn't be it wouldn't be around yeah. you know and i think sometimes that's a really kind of helpful way to think about it is like it's amazing and it's going to tell you if is there anything really serious going on in this scenario but if you really want to go deeper and spend a lot of time and go down the rabbit hole with it to really try and optimize what's going on, that's potentially the point when you're going to have to look more privately. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take a really common example. So somebody who has kind of suspected IBS type symptoms. So that might be loose stools, abdominal pain, bloating. So the common scenario is that that person justifiably correctly will go to the GP, which is the, absolutely the right avenue to kind of go to first. They might have a stool test to look at kind of calprotectin or kind of some, a few common pathogens if, it, if, it, if it's deemed relevant by the GP. Um, they might then also have a colonoscopy. What can often then come out of that is that nothing comes out of it, which is obviously great. But where this person is left is, well, they still have very real symptoms. So they have thankfully ruled out a range of other underlying causes, the most common one being IBD. But then they are left at the point, well, what what is going on then? What can I do to help myself? And that's really where private stool testing has its role to play, to kind of complement and go a bit further and synergize with what the NHS has done. Say, well, let's look even deeper at a wider range of markers, host markers and microbiome markers, like to widen the lens, basically. So you can look at... What are the wider range of imbalances that could be driving these symptoms so you've got more tools to help somebody with? So in that scenario of IBS, then, 
with a private stool test, you can then look at a range of markers like um, digestive enzyme secretions, like pancreatic elastase, you know, because often that can be depleted in IBS. You can look at markers of gut barrier health, like zonulin, because often the gut wall can be slightly permeable, which can make it much more sensitive. And then you look at a much wider breadth of microbes than is looked at on an NHS or other kind of conventional stool test, looking at maybe over 60, 70 plus microbial markers, which is far more comprehensive many by many orders times than what you can test conventionally, which then helps you to further investigate, you know, is it an overgrowth of a different type of microbe or is it not having enough of certain bacteria? So you've got more tools to help somebody with, basically. So when we look at something like, let's take a, a typical client, somebody with IBS, what are certain bacteria to start with that too much of can be problematic? So I think an interesting kind of way to kind of approach that is SIBO. So there is a big overlap between people with IBS and those people might often have SIBO, so it's more intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There can be a big overlap in, te- in, in those two conditions. And you can start to gauge the likelihood of SIBO from a private stool test, from certain private stool tests, um, which can help you to kind of get an idea if that's likely alongside clinical symptoms. So that kind of client with IBS, some kind of SIBO type symptoms alongside that can be, you know, yes, diarrhea or constipation, but also like a lot of upper digestive bloating, reflux, nausea, but also fatigue. So from a stool test what we can look for in terms of gauging the likelihood of SIBO is the certain microbes that can be overgrown that can produce a lot of gas so for example there's one called Bilifilla Wadsworthia there's another one I know there's a lot of tongue am I the only person Um, when um, someone talks about microbes I instantly think of Harry Potter I, I instantly think that like they just sound like magical in a way, the names of bacteria, oh, don't they? So true. So, um, so yes, and there's a few like a Bilifilla wadsworthia is um, a hydrogen sulfide. It's a gas producing bacteria. Another one that's a hydrogen sulfide producer is called Disulfovibrio. So when these two species are raised in a private stool test, um, you can get an idea about, well, there's going to be increased gas production potentially. Um, it could just be in the large intestine. But if that person has a range of upper GI symptoms like um, a kind of upper digestive bloating especially after eating and reflux you can kind of start from a picture of it's quite possible that those microbes might also be in the small intestine contributing towards that SIBO type presentation. Without sidetracking too much there I just think there's something interesting about um, typically when we think about reflux, heartburn, belching, those kind of things we um, I think have this idea that um, of course, there is this traditional thing of there's not the you know there's too much stomach acid, mm-hmm. which I think we've spoken about a lot on this podcast. That actually it might be on the contrary, but also this idea that, it, that if there's an upper digestive issue, it's an upper digestive problem. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think what we're really starting to learn is is like although there are some some things that can be dealt with further up, it can be things going on a lot further down that are fueling those symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. I think. SIBO is a great example of that and actually SIBO is a really interesting one because from a SIBO perspective there is a great tendency to want to kind of do a breath test get a positive SIBO result and then say an antimicrobial to try and address that what can often happen in that scenario is a recurrence of symptoms because once again remember that bucket and the and the and the, and the uh, leak in the ceiling of your bedroom of your bedroom roof for example is well why was SIBO able to develop in the first place so take SIBO for instance and we're increasingly talking about it in our industry as an ecosystem disorder so like what is it about the gut that's enabled that to happen in the first place because that there's actually quite a few adaptive processes in the gut which means actually our gut should be quite resilient and should make that quite hard to happen so when you take a SIBO scenario we do always recommend thinking right the right the way around that from how well are you chewing your food because if you're not chewing it very Mm -hmm. well it will ferment a lot more you know what is your stomach acid level like because many people have low stomach acid you know and also kind of um you know proton pump inhibitors that lower stomach acid and are given various reasons are well known to increase the risk of SIBO because you know you want um, acidity to enter from the stomach for into the small intestine because that that acidic 
chyme is what it's called, helps to make the environment in the small intestine more resilient to overgrowth. So low stomach acid can drive SIBO. Also low bile flow can. So there's a link to gallstones, for example, and SIBO being able to grow. Mm. So that's like working from the top down in terms of like top down factors driving SIBO. And then you've got the, like the, the bottom up factors in terms of like large intestinal dysbiosis. And that's really what we're talking about here from the stool test is how you can have a significant overgrowth of gas producing microbes in the large intestine, which broadly speaking can like backflow into the small intestine and drive SIBO too. And actually, just really keen to mention that another top down factor is oral dysbiosis. You know, mm. um, perhaps that's the beyond the scope of today, Ollie, I don't, I don't know, but you know, our mouth is colonized by microbes. We have an oral microbiome and there's a lot of research showing how an imbalance of the microbes living within our mouth can not just drive gum disease, like commonly recognised, but can actually drive lower digestive symptoms. It's being linked with SIBO, it's being linked with IBD, as well as systemic conditions like autoimmunity, for example. So we can't forget the interconnectedness between our different microbiome sites as well. And, you know, with our kind of focus and specialism on gut health, we need to remember that in, in terms of the, enti- the, the entire length of the digestive canal is we need to remember the mouth as well and the health of the oral microbiome too. It's a really important part. Yeah. I think at a later date, it'd be really interesting to do an episode specifically just on the oral microbiome because mm-hmm. there's it's such a rabbit hole yeah. to, to, to go down and there's so much to talk about there. I think that um, we've spoken a little bit about these bacterias that too much of a bacteria mm-hmm. can be really, really problematic and can be very common. At the beginning of this episode, we were saying, you get a test come in, you're looking straight away. A lot of practitioners are looking, right, the big hitters, what's overgrown here? They're probably almost excited because they're like, I know how I can sort this out. But let's talk a little bit about where it's actually a lack of certain bacteria. Um, What are those bacteria that it's quite common now, whether that's age, Western diet, antibiotic use, that it's quite common that this bacteria can be missing and why it is so important? Yeah, I love that question. And obviously that's what got us talking originally, Ollie, wasn't it? Because, you know... um, it is, it's quite common to kind of go through a, a stool test result and, and to not see the classic overgrowth that you're perhaps looking for. And I think the first point I'd always, always mention is that it's really important to rule those things out, though, because they could well have been a factor. So what we're talking about there really in terms of possible overgrowth is, say, certain parasites like Blastocystis hominis, certain pathogens like, you know, Bacteroides fragilis and Teratoxygenic, like Candida albicans, other Candida species. So on one level with microbiome testing and looking at so-called dysbiome, which is the term that means there's basically an imbalance in this microbiome site in some in, in some way the two ways you need to think about that is is there an overgrowth like of a parasite of a fungus um, of a bacterial pathogen and or is there too little of certain microbes that are actually really beneficial for different health for different health parameters in the gut and the rest of the body and sometimes you might see remarkably little in a stool test you might think oh like i'm maybe a bit disappointed about that like i thought there'd be more and i really love going through those tests because i'm like oh let's just go through it with a tooth comb and, and really see what's coming out and often that kind of really highlights what we call a missing microbe picture and that was really that term missing microbe was really coined by a microbiologist called martin blazer back in 2014 that was he's written a book with just that name and he really wrote a book really highlighting the clinical significance of having very poor diversity of microbes living within the human gut really due to antibiotic exposure that was really the slant he took that you know antibiotics have a really important role to play don't they in acute scenarios but the problem is is that chronic overuse of antibiotics perhaps in scenarios that maybe didn't need them potentially that that can lead to a a real loss of species diversity in the human gut microbiome and he really raised awareness of how that loss of species diversity in the human gut microbiome can increase the risk of, say, various conditions like asthma and autoimmune conditions and IBD, for instance. So what we're talking about here is often, occasionally, it's it's not just what's overgrown. It's often a case of what's not present or or what's not present in a a kind of a good enough abundance base because it might be a problem Mm -hmm. for somebody. And really what we're talking about there is your commensal bacteria. And your commensal bacteria are those microbes that we should live in symbiosis with, basically. They support our health and in turn we provide them with a really lovely environment in which to live. And we obviously feed them every day as well, which is rather nice. And those species that we're particularly talking about I like Lactobacillus and Bifidobacterium that probably most of your listeners have heard of. And there's lots of different species, there's lots of kind of key species and strains that are really key there. But also other species as well. So like Acomantia, Mycinophila, 
you know, Fecalibacterium prausnitzii, um, Ubacterium. There are a whole range of these kind of commensal bacteria that we should live in symbiosis with. So one of the key goals and kind of functions of really doing a private stool test is to also see, well, what's this person's, what's the diversity and abundance of their commensal microbiome? Do they have um, a nice diversity of these different species and are they present in, in, in a good abundance that is likely going to be health promoting? Um, yeah. And are we saying though that when a test comes back and 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 we, you know we've used the term missing microbes, is it is it ever that these don't exist, or is it generally that they're just in very small quantities? Generally, it's that they're in very small quantities, essentially. So either they um, typically with a microbiome test, there will be a reference guide provided showing you roughly what's expect, what's kind of generally what what abundance is generally quite normal, like what you see most of the time. And generally, what we're seeing talking about here is there might just be a very low amount of them relative to a reference range. Sometimes you do see it coming up as what you call under DL, so under detectable limit, which means that in a certain number of cycles of DNA analysis, that's the gold standard, the DNA of a particular microbe was not picked up. It doesn't necessarily right. mean that it's extinct, like it's not present at mm. all. That would be quite a dramatic interpretation. It means that not enough was detected, you know, in that number of cycles. So it might still exist in a tiny amount in the background, but it's basically in, present in a very insignificant amount. And is the job of a practitioner, is it as simple as giving the bacteria orally you know is is that you see a missing bacteria can you just take a pill and fill that bacteria back up yeah it's not as simple as that so there was originally um uh, a view within the industry that if you had a bacteria missing like say a, bif- a bifidobacterium was very low that you could supplement with that and that it would colonize and that the, the colony would increase and you'd be much better the reality is much more nuanced and there's a growing understanding that it is very strain specific so we need to be always be mindful of not over generalizing these things and thinking about what particular strain what's the research on that particular strain what's been found but what we're generally learning is that rather than using probiotics so the live bacteria as a supplement to actually colonize the gut what we're actually learning is that they work functionally as they move through the human gut so they exert certain anti-inflammatory modes of actions they move through they help to produce antimicrobial substances as they move through that, that protects the rest of the gut microbiome they might not colonize but they work really beneficially for the balance of the gut microbiome and the gut wall as they move through and rather if our goal is to actually increase the colony of say bifidobacterium we, yes, we might want to supplement with bifidobacterium to benefit from how we know it can support gut barrier and mental health, for example. But alongside that, we want to think about increasing, say, prebiotic intake. So prebiotics are the specific fibres, basically, that can feed specific bacteria like bifidobacterium. And a good example of um, a prebiotic that's very specific to that example is, say, galacto-oligosaccharide GOS. And that's a really lovely prebiotic that's naturally present in breast milk. So one reason why breastfeeding is so beneficial beneficial for um, the offspring's health is that it really is packed with prebiotics like GOS that helps that baby to develop a really lovely and diverse gut microbiome that then supports their long-term health but we can we can consume GOS as adults through supplements and also foods like pulses and legumes and GOS is very specific to feeding bifidobacterium so in that scenario we'd work quite broadly with say a probiotic approach choosing the particular strains that are human um, clinical trial evidence-based that we have they have particular clinical outcomes but nurturing the colony with prebiotics too is really key okay so i just want to i always like to recap just to make sure if i've got some takeaway points from this then so um when it comes to microbiome testing it's about finding a laboratory that has enough markers mm-hmm. you know has a broad range of markers that you're looking for not just microbiome only but we've spoken a little bit little bit about you know looking for you know how your um elast pancreatic elastase is working zonulin uh, calprotectin all of these kind of things and then sometimes it can be really helpful that that is something that can be interpreted by a practitioner because often it can be a one-on-one approach that kind of gets to a kind of better outcome mm-hmm. i think what was really interesting for me was understanding that when it comes to um uh diagnosis for example actually it's far more nuanced than that mm-hmm. yes we can say it's ibs yes we can say it, say it's ibd but actually taking a systemic look across the whole body yep. 
is key because if you get really really focused on one area and just deal with that the odds are that if you don't deal with the other bits often you get this recurrence you might get some relief for some kind of period of time but essentially if you're not dealing with like you're saying the north to south Mm -hmm. that's when you can get into these cycles of things kind of coming back again yeah i think that's a really really important point and i think um a really lovely example of that is the gut brain axis right so there's so much conversation justifiably about how gut health affects mental health about how mental health affects gut health and it's just kind of really kind of a lot of there's a lot of communication along that axis in both directions and i think if you take somebody with say depression anxiety you know which is unfortunately really common and we look at their gut microbiome there's certain patterns that we might look for and might see that link in with the research like low levels of key commensal bacteria that have been shown to be really protective for mental health like lactobacillus bifidobacterium coprococcus so we work to improve those through you know certain probiotics prebiotics and so forth but what we can't forget is actually we need to work on the host side of this as well we need to think about how can we work to just balance their nervous system from the top down as well thinking about you know lifestyle practices like meditation and deep breathing and calming herbs like lemon balm and nutrients like theanine and like other herbs like ashwagandha and you need to work on both sides of that equation to really kind of have the greatest chance of helping to support somebody's health because you know we can mm. we love the microbiome we love geeking out and i know that you know, you know many of your kind of audience probably just the same but and, and that's fantastic you're in the safe place but what's really important is that we we also look at the bigger picture so if you've got say ibs and we're justifiably looking at you know a stool test and different aspects of digestive function but we also need to put equal amount of attention on what are your stress levels like you know how are you sleeping have you looked at maybe your thyroid health could low thyroid function be contributing to your constipation and that's what's really key is to be super geeky and looking at the microbiome in detail and host markers for sure but also looking at the bigger the bigger context of that too so you've got more areas to really help somebody with at a deep level too Uh, I'm going to put in the show notes today uh, the uh, article Hidden Patterns, the Importance of Missing Microbes, because it's just, if I can encourage you to take one thing away from this episode, it's go and read that. It's so beautifully written and um, you'll just get a huge amount of value with it. So that's in the show notes right now if you want to check that out. I would love at a later date, Emily, that we get back together and potentially we can talk a little bit more. I think an episode on the oral microbiome would be absolutely fascinating. Um, but really, really appreciate you having on the show today. It's, it's just been fascinating. Oh, my absolute pleasure. And can I leave one thought, kind of one analogy to leave with your um, listeners as well? So yeah. as we've kind of spoken about in terms of nourishing the microbiome, we spent time thinking about probiotics and prebiotics. And what I often encourage um, my clients to think about and also kind of the practitioners that we support as well is when thinking about how to optimize the health of your gut microbiome we need to think about it on two levels so if you imagine a seesaw so on one side of that seesaw you've got somebody's exposure to nourishing influences to their gut microbiome like your probiotic rich foods and supplements and your prebiotics and stress management for example for example all of that's really important but on the other side of that seesaw you've got the straining influences on somebody's gut microbiome so you've got chronic stress you've got poor sleep you've got pesticide exposure you've got a lack of exposure to natural environments and if you the crucial point when trying to really support the health of your gut microbiome is to work on both sides of that seesaw so simultaneously increasing your exposure to those nourishing influences but simultaneously really working on stress management and sleep and reducing your pesticide exposure because in my experience if you just focus on the nourishing influences some of these progress can be limited and you really want to work on both sides of that and that can be so exciting for people I think that's a perfect place to leave today's episode. Emily Blake, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.